Hello, um, I'm Andy Ellis, and uh, welcome to another edition of this podcast. I'm, I'm considering a run for governor of Maryland as a Green Party candidate in 2026, and I'm using this podcast and show to highlight people and ideas that I think are really important to the world as it is now and the world as it can be. Now, anybody who appears on this show uh, may or may not support the Green Party, support my campaign, et cetera. They're not here in order to be promoters. They're here in order to contribute ideas uh, and, and to share what they have to share um, about uh, the important topics that the campaign is discussing. So today, uh, I'm really excited to have on this show Dr. Bernard Tomas. And Dr. Tomas is an associate professor at Valdosta State University, uh, and he's an expert on elections, electoral bias, and U.S. third parties. He completed his PhD at Rutgers University and has worked at Columbia, Princeton, Williams, Brandeis, and Illinois State University. He's often called on by news outlets to offer his expertise and insight on political issues and is widely published in the academic and news outlets. Um, and his book, uh, he, he's re he has a 2018 book that we're going to talk about today, The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties, uh, Poised for a Political Revival. To me, it's an excellent exploration of the history of third parties in America, uh, the challenges that they face today, and what possibilities exist to make, um, uh, to make a future in which they're, again, making an impact on American politics. Um, can we go ahead and bring Dr. Tomas in? Excellent, excellent. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, do you want to give an introduction of yourself that's a little less formal than a, than that bio there? No, well, I, I thought that was that was pretty good. That's right. I'm an uh, associate professor here at Valdosta State University, which is in in southern Georgia. It's a wonderful little little college, and and yeah, I've I've taught at a number of other places and have been been various areas in this in this career and and have written a few books and have published some articles. And so, yeah, and one of my, my main interests is in, in American third parties, smaller parties globally, how elections are run and, and, and the like. So it's, uh, but I really appreciate being able to take the time to, to kind of do a deep dive into some of these topics. So, so this, is, this is a real opportunity, I think. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And before we get to that deep dive, um, we like to vacation up in the Berkshires sometimes, and we end up staying at a place very near Williams. I also have a really good friend who worked on a previous campaign that I was on that went to Williams. How did you like it up there when uh, when you were working there? Oh, Williams was gorgeous. Williams was was a, a really nice experience. Uh, it had to be the smallest college I've I've taught in and the, the, the most rural place. I often tell people here, they, they think this is rural and it, this is not rural here in Southern Georgia, the Williams is, but it's, it was, it was pretty stunning and it was a great experience for me. Yeah. I really like it up there. And uh, if I had a place that I could choose in the, in the U S where I would, where I would retire or end up uh, Williams, the area around Williams and the Northern Berkshires may be it. So. Uh, yeah. Very cold in the winter, but, but, but gorgeous. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, let's get into this because there's a lot to cover in this book. Can you start with just a high level account of, of, of the book, The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties, Poised for a Political Revival? OK, so at the time that I wrote the book, the uh, general view on third parties by political scientists had been that third parties had permanently disappeared in American politics. They're they're gone. They're completely gone. They're never coming back. And that there are many, many, many reasons why there's this overwhelming number of factors. And what I found uh, going into the data, I discovered that that there actually was only a limited amount of actual statistical analysis and historical analysis on it. Uh, what I found was that, first of all, many of the explanations for whether third parties succeed or fail uh, didn't actually hold up scientifically. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was, in fact, that third parties have been reviving starting pretty much in the, the late 1960s and, and gradually rising. They're not certainly at the level that they were back in the, the 1920s, lower 1910s, let's say, but, but they certainly have been on, their, on the rise. And that led me to the conclusion that that chances are, 
at some point, they, there really is going to be a revival of third parties in American politics, that, that there is no reason to think that we are stuck entirely with a two-party system. Yeah, and, and I think that's interesting because I think there's sort of a widespread understanding that um, while third parties are at a low level of success, they seem like the moment is ripe with possibility. We'll see these studies all the time that say 63% of people want a third party or something like that. Um, but how ripe is the moment actually? Is there actually a moment of possibility here? Uh, well, and what contributes to that? Well, I guess that, the again, the short answer is, is, is there is... Uh, good news for third parties, and then there's bad news for third parties. It's, so it's a mixed bag right now. And and the good news is that the, the third parties are more successful historically at moments where there's high levels of polarization. It's the point when the parties start really separating, and more important than that, Lots of people in the in the public feel like they're they're not being represented. That these are moments that the third parties emerge. Uh, so that's one of the factors. The one big difference, though, between now and a hundred years ago is is that that politics, electoral politics, is different and costs a lot of money. And and these kind of the resources that that parties need right now is different than what it was a hundred years. And it's something that's harder for third parties to get their hands on, which means the big problem for third parties to figure their way around more than anything is the issues of things like television, uh, how to get the, the resources they need in order to, to become more competitive. Got you, got you. And and I think that that makes a lot of sense that the resources are the real issue uh, that we're facing right now. And I definitely want to get back to that because I think that's a really important part to talk about. But first, I want to talk about some of the common reasons people say third parties are limited right now. And you said that one of the things that the book does is explain those common reasons and then kind of go in and do the analysis on them. So let's talk about a couple of uh, those those reasons and, and why you see them as, as insufficient. Um, where do you want to start with this? Uh, which of the assumptions do you want to start well, with? Well, I, I guess the starting point is always Duverger's law, of the, the, the argument that, that Duverger's law basically says that when you run elections the way that we do, with, with what some call, uh, the British call first past the post, you're not going to have third parties. You're going to have two major parties, and that's basically it. It's a theory that was, that in truth, is Duverger kind of took credit for it, even though it was actually around for a very long time. And he published it in the 1950s, when if you looked at the UK, there really were only two parties. Then he looked at the US, there were only two parties, and then inferred that this was a, uh, he effectively called it a sociological law, and wish he hadn't said it that way. But it ultimately comes down to the idea that if you have elections where there's one person that's going to win and that one candidate who wins is, is whoever gets the most votes, so they don't even need a majority, they just need a plurality, that people don't want to waste their votes on, on third-party candidates, on the minor candidates, that all they're doing is helping a candidate they don't like. And so what that does is that it forces, pushes people in order to, to vote for just the major parties. Well, the problem with the theory is you can kind of a simple way of explaining where its limitation is, is that most political systems that run elections like us do not simply have two dominant parties, not anymore. Starting around the 1970s, you started having uh, smaller parties rising up in places like Canada and the UK. In India, it's it's always been this way, but even they basically track following the same pattern as, as some of these other first-past-the-post systems. And so you have, you don't have, let's say, Denmark or, or even, let's say, uh, France, but you do have... Uh, uh, more party, you more have more parties there. The the Liberal Democrats are an important party in in the UK, for example. And so the idea that that nobody is going to vote for third parties if you have have first past the post 
it, it simply doesn't even come close to holding up. You're, it's harder for smaller parties in these systems, but they're not wiped out. And so you have to ask the question, why is the U.S. so different? We're, we're not like the U.K. We're more like the Bahamas and, and um, uh, Jamaica, where they have two very dominant parties. So this is, this is kind of a, a non-starter as a theory. It, it, it's important that, that the way that you run elections, but it isn't so detrimental that it would wipe out the third parties the way they've been, been kept down in the United States. And so that, I think that is a good explanation of the limits of it. Are there possibilities of its explanatory power as well? Well, the, it, the way that you run elections definitely has an impact, but it seems to me, and a lot of people who study also study these parties globally, that the key isn't the way that you do the counting. It's the number of people who win per district. So a lot of systems have where these these multi-member districts, four, five, 10, 20 different people voted in the same same much larger electoral district. That's where you tend to have people, uh, parties winning more seats, smaller parties. When you have a single one, at least this is my uh, explanation for it, which I think is very consistent with with the data is that what will happen is if you have a smaller party and it's then and it's everything is cut into one single member districts then what will happen is you have to do very well in a very concentrated area in order to win the seats otherwise you let's say you get 10% 15% of the vote across every district well you wind up winning zero and then since you wound up winning zero you don't get the kind of resources that parties who win actually get and so it's it's a system that works against them. And so it's it's the way that the elections are actually run does matter a lot, but it has probably less to do with with how you're counting the votes. And so that has a lot of an impact on how you move forward strategically. Excellent. Um, and and how about how about state laws on, on ballot access? Well, well, this is the one where I, I think I've had the uh uh, some political scientists most upset with me, but but in all frankness, it's what I did more than anything is is demonstrate something with a lot of lot of data that showed that a lot of what people think are the state laws that are stopping third parties are not stopping third parties. That they're if they have no negative impact, I wouldn't say no negative impact. But little, and the first one is is of course the ballot access laws, and I'm sure this is this is an issue that that you have to deal with directly, and that is needing to get enough signatures to actually be on the ballot, so that when people vote, they can find your name, find the Green Party candidates, and actually check their names off. And the argument has been that ballot access laws have gotten very very difficult over the over the 20th century that it used to be easy for political parties to get a, you know, you get a small number of signatures, you get on the ballot. And then if people like you, they vote for you. And then it turned out that the states, some states at least, started making it steadily more and more difficult for the third parties to get on the ballot. And the idea was, well, third parties can't even get on the ballot. How are they supposed to win elections? Now, I'm not saying it isn't hard to get on the ballot, but the evidence is that that it has not that much to do with ballot access laws. So if look at look at the Greens and the Libertarians, Libertarians, uh, Libertarians are the, the strongest third party right now. The Greens, I would say, are number two on this. That's and and both of these parties get people on the ballots all the time. It's it's the kind of thing third parties are really capable of doing. And so there's no evidence that that third parties are failing because of the ballot access laws. If anything, there's even evidence that going out and getting signatures helps a tiny little bit. But but that's that's one of them. And probably the other one that's that's really the big argument by a lot of people is that what the U.S. needs are fusion laws. So fusion is the idea. It was made famous in New York State. 
uh, but it's around in about five states now. And the idea is that when you go into the ballot in a fusion state, you can vote, vote. a candidate can run as, as both a, a, let's say, a Democrat and a Green. So you can be on both ballots at the same time, both be nominated by both parties. And the argument was that this is somehow supposed to be the reason why New York used to be such a great state for third parties. Well, my evidence actually showed it was exactly the opposite, that this was probably the biggest way of killing third parties, that it didn't actually help the third, but there's no evidence that, that it really promoted the third parties. And if anything, there's no evidence that that fusion was something that was widespread before and disappeared. Now, it's been basically consistent over this entire period since the Civil War. And if anything, I think New York State in particular uses the, the fusion laws as a way of keeping third parties under control. The, the great New York parties of the 1940s pretty much largely disappeared uh, since then. So it's I, I don't think you look at the state laws as the as the key. Obviously, if you're you're Cornell West, you should be concerned about ballot access laws. Mm-hmm. But in terms of stopping third parties, it it really hasn't. Yeah, and and I think I think that the interesting thing about that is the uh, so yes, obviously we have to spend a lot of time working on ballot access, and we have to spend a lot of time collecting signatures. We spend time on regulation. We spend time on lawsuits around it. Uh, and I think that uh, what I found interesting about your observation and your data here was that not only did it show that it was not more difficult to get on the ballot, but that, as you pointed out here, it's a little bit better. Um, it's a little bit per- better performance in places where they where third parties do have to petition. Now, not a, t- a ton better, but um, it seems like you're measuring two things there. The a number of candidates that are on the ballot and the number of votes that are that candidates are getting in that regard. And can you talk a little bit more about if you think that there's actual value uh, in the petitioning process? I know you mentioned it briefly that it, it helps a little bit. Do you think there's enough data to show that it helps significantly? Not slightly? significantly. I mean, if, if you could skip it, <laughs> I don't see any point behind doing it. Yeah. Uh, it's so small that, that it really, it, it really would take a lot. It, it, it's probably less than a 1% increase in the vote. It's, it's surprisingly small. Uh, but, but it makes sense in a way because when you're out getting signatures, you're advertising and it may just not be the best form of advertising. So, but but again, you, you have to be impressed with, with the, both like the Greens and the Libertarians who have really have operations going to, to handle this. The third party movement has really worked hard to to get around uh, this problem, to be organized for it. It might yeah. be harder for a new party trying to emerge out of nowhere. But but again, overall, this is this is a this is an obsession that I think third party activists should drop as a complaint. I think it's, it's not what's going to, and they should stop trying to spread fusion throughout the United States. It's not going to help. This is not where the problem is. Got you. Uh, Let's talk about one more uh, explanation that, uh, that is often given for why third parties don't succeed. And that is co-option. And then let's get into the, what the factors you found that really are there. Oh, well, co-optation is actually like a, a, an interesting one because the, the whole idea of the, the co-optation argument is that every time a third party comes by and they're being successful, the major parties co-opt their, their issue stance. And that there, there is, in fact, a lot of evidence that, that, that that's what happens that the second they see a a challenge coming, they respond. This is an important thing about the major parties that the third parties have to keep in mind. Major parties pivot, you know, they, they react to threats, they react to challenges. And so if a third party is going to threaten them, they're going to respond. My argument though, is you can't explain the complete collapse of third parties in the 1920s from from co-optation, you can explain their decline, uh, individual parties decline. So there is there is an article out 
that that argues that that the that FDR had basically co-opted the entire left with the New Deal and that this was the end of third party movements. And I it some very good scholars, but I don't buy the argument that that a first of all, because the third parties had already disappeared by the time FDR came along. You can start with that problem. And the second problem is it doesn't explain why they don't reemerge. What with the co-optation, it winds up being third parties rise, the major parties steal, and then third party they disappear, then third parties rise again. And when you're not having that process, there's nothing being co-opted, mm-hmm. right? They're just not there. But this co-optation issue, by the way, and hopefully we'll have time to go into it, is actually a key in terms of how third parties actually do gain success, that this is part of what, what the third parties should understand moving forward, that this is a process, but it's a process they can use to their advantage. Right. It's not that co-optation doesn't happen. It's the co-optation doesn't explain the entirety of the present condition. Is that right? Look, the, the third parties were big until about the 1920s. They started really disappearing then. I mean, consider the Socialist Party was was pretty huge in America and it started declining actually before we even got to the Great Depression and the and and FDR. By the 19, 1940s, you had a few pockets of of some strong third parties. By the 1950s, they're completely gone in early 1960s when all these theories were being developed. Mm-hmm. And then they started rising again uh, slowly. So you can't explain why in the 1950s they they disappeared. Something else happened. And and we can go into what that something else is as we go. But yeah, so I, I think that's a good transition. What are the factors that you see limiting third party growth uh, in the late 20th century and in the 21st century? Well, well, if we talk about why third parties first collapsed, part of it was their fuel was taken away and their fuel seem to have been the major parties polarizing against each other when the major parties were were ignoring the the third the large portions of the population and concerns that they had eventually a third party would come in and and grab that so what would happen give me a second here what would happen is so a classic example of that is with the with the Republicans and the progressives in the 1910s. So the Republicans were start, were moving very very far to the right, becoming very reactionary, and there was this entire progressive movement kind of bubbling up in America. But but the, especially the Republicans were ignoring it, and and the Democrats largely too. Well, what happened was the Republican Party split. And then there became this this third party, then the, the progressives who kind of came out of nowhere and and openly challenged them. It was a complete disaster for the Republicans. This is this is how we wound up with Woodrow Wilson. But we also wound up with large numbers of Republican politicians losing their careers. And so the Republicans, what they did was they moderated. They shifted back towards the center. And so. That shifting back and and uh, became so the entire composition of the Republican Party changed for a while, and the Republicans became a much more moderate party. In fact, the Democrats and the Republicans became almost indistinguishable for for several decades. So this is this is a big part of you know the when that polarization disappeared. So if you look at the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties there really wasn't a lot for people to be super angry about. There wasn't a lot driving uh, third party success. It was also in the middle of the Cold War, so it was easy to label third parties. But what really seemed to start triggering it again is in the 1960s when when the two parties started separating again. Once you post-civil rights movement, the, 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 the party started really getting into conflict and it st- kept getting worse. And as we know, that polarization keeps getting worse, mm-hmm. which is where kind of this, this opening is. But I mean, this might be a good time to talk about, about how the, the third parties have like gained power. It's this, this theory. 
It's referred to as the the sting like a bee theory. Yeah, let's talk about the sting like a bee theory. Now right. a good the sting thing. like a bee theory uh, is basically comes down to is that the most successful parties, the third parties in the U.S. are like bees. And what bees do is, of course, they they attack and they sting and they hurt. So the idea is that that here you have major parties ignoring some major issues, ignoring some groups in the population. So then the third party comes in uh, with some galvanizing issues, something that really uh, is, is angering people. And they come in and they take a lot of votes away from the major party. The, major, the third party barely wins any seats, but the, the party being attacked loses seats uh, and and winds up uh, having a situation where they're now concerned about their future. They then co-opt whatever issue the, the, the third parties are bringing up. So this is the second part of being a bee. You, you sting and you cause pain, but then you die. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the third parties, uh, they, they make their mark. They create the policy changes they wanted. The 19, 19, late 1910s, 1920s were major progressive changes, which then continued in with FDR. It was that that pain is what, what caused it. So the third parties actually won the policies that, that they were looking for, mostly. But you look at the biggest third parties in American history, most of them didn't last in any major way for maybe decade one decade is probably about the you know usually even less than that so they came they smashed and then they died yeah and i mean i think this makes sense like if we if we understand that the world that we live in is a two-party system for the most part and not a multi-party system the role is like what power do third parties play play in a two-party system what role do third parties play in a two-party system i mean it would be nice if we moved to some proportional multi-party system and we can talk about that in a bit but that is not the system we have so this thing like a b theory sounds to me a lot like what democrats and republicans more democrats i think will call spoilers which is you know you're trying to take votes away from us uh and is there a similarity between this thing like is it different sides of the same coin yeah, I mean, it's basically the, the the point of being a third party is to be a spoiler with a purpose. You know, right. it's not like what we're seeing right now with the no labels group, which is being a spoiler and and you can't figure out why. And you wonder, is it they're just trying to help out Trump? It's actually kind of a look, you've been ignoring this issue. And so we're going to put pressure on you. Politics is based on pressure. Mm-hmm. This is what's happening. Why is the Republican Party moving so far to the right? A lot of it is this is where the pressure is. And so politicians who in the Republican Party who don't go along with the program wind up being in danger. But they're they're exposing themselves doing this. And that's that exposure is what you're what what is third parties you have to look for. You have to look at where they're exposed and then you attack. And that's the way. But you can't sit there and expect them not to respond. They're right. going to respond. You want them to respond. And, 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 so, and their tools of response are things like ballot access laws. And, and not ballot access laws in the sense that they raise the threshold, although that happening in New York State may change what happened in New York State. But in the sense that they use... My experience, and we've had a lawsuit against the state of Maryland about this, is that they will use signature verification requirements. They will use very, not the not the number of signatures required, but the form and manner of the signatures in order to knock third party threats off of the ballot. Is that, right. does that make sense with your research? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of what they do. Part of what they do is they make, try to make life as miserable as they can for third parties uh, and by, by creating roadblocks. But part of it is also that if a third party has, has picked up a either, let's say, an issue stand would be the best, some sort of issue uh, positioning, but at the set or, or even a new rhetorical style, then what happens is they try to, they co-opt it. Mm-hmm. They try to pull it into theirs and, and it's partially because sometimes it's like, wow, we didn't realize that this was as big of an issue. We thought that we could ignore this, 
but actually not only shouldn't we ignore it, but we should grab it because this could help us win more. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. pivot and and that's just the way it is. And, and this becomes part of it is third parties also have to pivot aggressively pushing for what they want. And, 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 and you know, I mean, I think I think think what happens a lot of cases with this is third parties get mad at major parties for responding in the ways that is almost you almost would expect them to co-opting issues, making laws that make it harder. I oftentimes think, well, of course they're going to do that, right? Like their job is to maintain power uh, and they don't want out of the benevolence of their hearts to give it up to somebody else, you know? And uh, so I don't know. I think, I think that, uh, I think that part of it is interesting that like how we define success is stinging like a bee. And then maybe that party goes away and then another one, because I think there's a lot of question amongst people who are in third parties around what it looks like to succeed. What is it? How do we define success? What are examples of this and how do we set goals around it? Um, that I think is a difficult question for third party practitioners. Like what does it look like to have success, especially in 2023 when we don't have really good examples of that um, in, in the last, you know, in, in many years? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, and you can also fight for different types of success at the same time. You know, this is, this is what I'm saying does not mean you stop focusing on also trying to win local elections, right? Winning local elections, by the way, is a good way of scaring major, you know, uh, political parties, make forcing them in. It's no doubt the, the, the best thing would be if you could actually get uh, Green Party candidates and Libertarian Party candidates actually winning seats and and being involved in in government. Even best if it was in Congress, which is still a far shot right now, as far as we can tell. But certainly in terms of state legislative elections, local elections, and and so these two two things don't don't contradict each other. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're all part of the process. Of, of fighting for power, you know. If you you if you're if you're a startup and you're attacking Google, Google's gonna respond. Yeah. That's what Google does, you know, yeah. or any other major corporation. And, and, and if they don't, it's, to, only, it's only a sign that you're irrelevant to them. Yeah, and it's and it's you have to accept expect it. You know, I mean, this is if you. You know, I mean, if you want to take it in terms of military strategy, I mean, you, you know, you, they're not going to just sit there, you know, if you're you're attacking them, if it's attacking another side, you have to, you're actually at some level looking to produce some sort of a, a response. And so you, you should just see it this way. I mean, the idea that we come along and we present new issues and everyone thanks you, this is it, this is not going to happen. These yeah. are, these are competitive groups. One way I often explain this to first time and new candidates is like, at first, they're going to pat you on the head and say how nice it is you're participating in the process. And then as you become a little bit more of a threat to them, they're going to ignore you. And then once they're, they see you as of enough of a threat that they have to fight, they're going to fight you and they're going to fight you hard. And your analysis of their power is right. And like when they fight you, you're going to feel it. Yeah, you should take them being nice to you as condescension. And it is condescension. And part of the reason they're doing that is so that everyone else knows that you don't think, you know, you're taking them seriously and they won't take you seriously until it's time for them to take you seriously. And when they do, they will, they will fight. But, But that's true of any political party and any democracy around the world. This is how it's done. It's supposed to be competitive. Yeah. And so you compete. I think there is this unfortunate tendency that can occur amongst third party practitioners who who don't want to spoil uh, elections uh, that, you know, to run away from that actual from that concept. And I understand why. Um, At the same time, it feels like that is a sort of non-political performance uh, in which power is not actually at stake. Right. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, what did the Tea Party do? It, it, it had, 
it's obviously they call themselves a party. They're not. A, they were never a political party. They were an internal group within the Republican Party. But what they did was once the billionaires joined in, they used it as a way of of attacking moderate Republicans. And yeah. that was part of what. And so it did two things. One, it knocked off moderate Republicans and replaced them with conser- more conservative Republicans and then even more conservative Republicans. But it also scared the rest of the, the moderate Republicans out of being moderate Republicans. And so this is what they do. But that's again, this is less an issue for for the Greens, but more the libertarians. It's this is their opening because the Republicans are following a path that's opening a giant gaping hole for them to take, which they are, the libertarians are not taking. But again, we'll, we'll probably get to that a little bit more later. Yeah, it seems almost like most libertarians are taking an, a different path, uh, which is to be even more radical in some cases than they see the, the right. And it's a, an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we could talk at the about about the libertarians for a moment now, but the if the the libertarians the their great opening is is so as as the Republican Party moves more and more in the MAGA direction, is is to try to make the argument that they are the most like the traditional conservative contra- traditional con, you know uh, the ones that used to to uh, be big in the, the suburbs. This is, this is a giant, massive opening for the libertarians mm-hmm. and, and they're not taking it. They seem to be so focused on being the same party they were in the 1970s and, and still making some amount of votes because a lot of people think of themselves as libertarians. But right now, the libertarians you know, really have the the possibility of making a major change in, in American politics that is desperately needed because you need what you want are parties that are actually responding to the public. And instead, what's happening is, is that the, the Republican Party is becoming more and more focused farther and farther to the right, more and more on cultural issues. And, you know, I mean, the Republican Party is still moving to the right on abortion even as the public has demonstrated clearly they don't want to do this. How much more of an opening do you want? Right. And and I've often thought that the, I've thought that the libertarians have the opportunity to seize the space that no labels and forward are trying to seize in some ways, which is the sort of rational centrist party that is traditional conservatives. Um, but they seem... You know, I will say not all of them. Maryland last year, the gubernatorial candidate did seize that space. He sort of claimed the mantle of Larry Hogan uh, and tried to fill the space between the MAGA Republican uh, and the sort of neoliberal Democrat that was running. Uh, And he did well. Uh, Best third party performance for a Maryland gubernatorial campaign in a long time. It certainly helped that there was a 30 point spread uh, between the Democrat and the Republican, and everyone knew there would be, uh, because a MAGA candidate running in Maryland is just, there's, there's no hope for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, again, look at it this way. I mean, and this is as as we get to talking about the, the Greens, but to the, the Libertarians, you need a galvanizing issue. So the forward party you know, they, they, they started off by claiming, well, unlike other parties, we're not going to fail. And then failed. It took him, what, a week or two weeks to become irrelevant. It was it was a stunning uh, decline. But a lot of it was they played this. Well, the Democrats are bad and the Republicans are bad and and polarization is not nice. And so we should stop looking uh, and having conflicts. We should be practical and looking for this is not a galvanizing issue. No. This is not a galvanizing issue. This is not the kind of thing that get get people riled up. And so and this whole constant need to, well, we're, we're going to be on both sides of this and we're nicer than the other. This is going to go nowhere. You have to attack. And the attack and the, the attack is not on the Democratic side. The, the, the attack for the libertarians is 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 the Republicans, the Republicans, right. the conservative, you know, go after the the fiscal conservative, how you're libertarians. This is what libertarians would argue. Pivot. You know, the, 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 they seem to be 
there's there's this internal conflict in the libertarian party where they're like well we have our original ideas in this from the 70s and and we shouldn't get let that go it's like no let it go you know and you can do it where you claim you're being consistent you actually would be being consistent but you have to pivot based on what is you know I'm sorry, but if you're, again, let's use the corporate example. You form in the 1970s. Whatever it is you did in the 1970s is is outdated. It's just the way that it is. That's, what, 50 years ago? Yeah. And so speaking of some ideas uh, and platforms that got consolidated in the 1970s, let's talk about how you see Greens nationally and what, what opportunities they have. All right. Well, I would say that the way that I would look at this is, is again, the, the two major parties would be libertarians and greens and greens are um, the greens are the smaller, the two, but the greens, I think at least show signs of being capable of actually doing a little bit of that pivoting. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that what happens is, is that really in, in the greens case, you actually are coming from the left, like where, I, I don't think you have the, it's not what you're interested in anyway. It's not the policy changes that you want. Uh, but there are definitely signs of, of opening even there. Your negative is the Democrats actually are, in a sense, responding. Because what you have is it's, while the Republicans are becoming more and more of like this closed movement, the Democrats are still a big tent party. So you definitely have your your moderates, but you also have Bernie Sanders and you have the squad. And so it's harder for you as, as Greens to distinguish yourselves from at least that side of the Democratic Party. But you still have to try to do it. And I think your biggest opening is is the shift in in terms of where younger Americans are right now, that this is the this is the group. For, for the Greens. The younger Americans are more and more uh, disenchanted with the major system. Everybody in America claims, oh, I wish we had more third parties and then they vote Democrat or Republican. But the, the younger voters are, are the ones that, that seem to be most open. There's enough social and uh, change going on and enough issues for them that, that actually are things that will galvanize them. And so the, the big question for the Greens is, is what those issues are that you want to go after, mm -hmm. how you get them to your audience, and how do you keep yourself distinct from the Democratic Party? Yep. And, and I think what's interesting is, so if we think about Forward or the Libertarians, they in some ways do have access to the resources or no labels, do have access to resources in a way that Greens almost never will or never have up until this point. Um, but their unwillingness to focus on wealth inequality, I think, makes it uh, takes away a good issue that, that, I, that I think third parties ha often have an opportunity to, to, to seize. Um, and it, you know, I mean, there is certainly a connection between having the resources and being unwilling to talk about wealth inequality. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think, I think it would be interesting to have a party like Andrew Yang's or no labels that was willing to address that in a meaningful way. Um, because their resources come from being wealthy, you know? And so, um, I, I think that, you know, I, I think one of the areas that I think, especially in a place like Maryland, the greens can focus on, is what, what can we, you know, how do we tax the wealthy? How do we put more hands, more money in the hands of working and poor people? And I think that as Democrats have been dragged to the right in a two-party system in some ways, they've gotten somewhat better at that, but um, are afraid of some of the rhetoric around that. Um, you know, I think there's policy that Democrats are implementing that is good in, in, in this regard. I think EITC and I think other policies are, are really useful policies that do help with some of that, address that, but they seem to me like they're in a position where rhetorically they can't capture the imagination of young voters and of folks that are suffering from that wealth inequality, at least in, in, at the presidential level. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think you can definitely look at it that way. I, I, I'm not convinced the libertarians actually have access that much to that many resources. They're actually as the candidates are as poor as the, you know, but having said that, the, the libertarians do very, very well 
in the, in the West, they're really tapping into something and they, they can tap into it more. Uh, in, in terms of young voters, you know, a, a lot of these issues that they they're really seem to be concerned about include two of them that come to mind immediately are related to just the basic cost of, of a university education. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this is if from an individual level, one of the steps to take to actually be make a decent income is to actually have a college degree. But college degrees are becoming unaffordable because of the because every time you know, the, the, the government says, well, we're going to cut taxes and then we're going to to reduce government spending. The first place it comes out of is in education. And and so you this is this is one of the, the, the things to attack. Why isn't tuition practically free since it, it's a public good? Why mm. that would be certainly something. Climate change has got to be a major and will be a continually rising issue for for younger voters and then there's a there's a slew of them and and again I, I think the point is is to to watch what's what's happening and try to anticipate it before the before the Democrats really grab it yeah right? you know I mean one issue in this vein that I think is an underappreciated aspect of Jill Stein's 2012 and 2016 campaigns, is the issue of student debt relief and college costs. And I think this is a place where quietly the Democrats have engaged in that co-optation game. They have seen how that, that, it, that this is an issue that galvanized people and that people were willing to make a distinction on in 2016. Uh, and it has been incorporated into Joe Biden's um, policy. You know, no, Joe Biden is not doing it the way that Jill Stein would do it. But I think it would be hard to say that this is not a place where Greens have raised an issue effectively and Democrats have, without acknowledging that it came from Greens, done some co-optation on it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that that there, there definitely has been in smaller level co-optation of these issues. Look, we don't have to go back that far to to remember the day time when the Democrats' great strategy was was to argue, you know, our problem is we're not conservative enough. Yeah. We need to be a third way. We need to be, you know, we need the, our blue dog Democrats to come out and, and be like the Republicans, but not quite like the Republicans. And then what would happen is often in the Democratic primary, somebody would come forward and actually challenge this directly. And then there would be this huge galvanizing of, of support for them. I mean, the the effect of, of Bernie Sanders of bringing up these issues, I think, again, it's the same thing that the Democrats are all oh, how nice, you know, how nice Bernie come along. And then suddenly he starts actually pulling in all kinds of support overwhelmingly by younger people. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then, yes, they're they're responding. And so. So you and you have to expect that they respond. And let's be honest, if your goal is those issues, then then this was definitely effective, maybe not as effective as the Greens want, but certainly that I I think that there's a real uh, divide there, the generational divide. And and now's the time for the Greens to try to to grab hold of that and use that to put more pressure on on the political system. Let me ask you about two voting reforms uh, and see if you think uh, what you think about those. How do you feel about ranked choice voting? Is it worth pursuing? Does it help? Uh, what are your thoughts? I, I, if you're talking strictly in terms of promoting third parties, I am not a fan. I'm not against the idea of people ranking votes and candidates instead of simply selecting one, but. But my sense is that there's very little evidence that it has any impact whatsoever uh-huh. on the number of political parties, like yeah. none. Look, the ranked choice voting, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that all, practically everybody who's listening to this knows what it is. But just, to, you know, ranked choice voting is based on the Australian system where what happens is, is you instead of just choosing a candidate, you you say which one you like the most, and you have to rank it down to the one you like the least. And if you happen to be selecting somebody who has very little support, 
then what happens is they toss that candidate and then they redistribute it until, and they keep doing that from the bottom up until you have a candidate who actually has a majority of the vote. And for years, and for years, just to finish it, as for years, everyone was saying, oh, the Australian system, look, it it promotes, does a better job of, of promoting smaller parties. It does not do a better job of promoting small parties. It does about the same job as as the UK does, as Canada does, and frankly, as India does, even though people think India is more. It, if you look at it closely enough at the district level, it's not. So I the my only concern with the ranked choice thing is it's a a a false hope in something that people it's it's an it's not that it's a bad idea. It might be a waste of resources because it might do very little in terms of the impact on, on at least on, on the number of parties or on the strength of third parties. Yeah. I largely agree with that. I think it's probably a little bit better for some voters in some races to have, be able to rank as opposed to have to choose one thing, but I don't think it changes outcomes. I don't think it changes party alignment. I think it, uh, I think it, and in the only place where I could see it helping outcomes or helping parties is with, Good government, middle of the road parties like No Labels or um, Forward. I could see them getting a slightly higher share of a vote in a world where people don't like the polarization and and will rank somebody second. But I don't see it change. I don't see it electing a No Labels candidate where otherwise a Democrat or Republican would have gotten elected. I agree with that one hundred percent. I mean, it might. But have, you know, where moderate candidates, moderate major party candidates do a little bit better. But I haven't seen the evidence really to support that as of yet. So I'm I'm not saying I'm against it. I don't think it's a disaster, but it might be a waste of 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 resources trying to make that work. Yeah. I mean, my basic take on this is the premise that goes once we get ranked choice voting, Greens will start succeeding is a faulty one that is not borne out by the evidence. That's right. Yeah. Where's, where are the greens right now in Maine? Right. 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 I mean, that's, that's on the federal level. That's there's um, just, there's no evidence. And, and second question, what about proportional representation? Is it worth fighting for? Is it? Well, it, Oh, I'm sorry to j- jump in. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. if, if, Proportional representation, I, I think, is is by far the best system. Obviously, there's lots of different types of proportional representation. But if you look at any uh, system that has this where, you know, a proportional representation, you go in and you, it, well, in the simplest version, you vote for one of the political parties, and then it's based proportionally on how much that, that party is supported. You, the Greens get 10% of the vote, they get something probably a little bit more than 10% of the seats. That's the system that you want. I'd get there's lots of reasons. That's a system that, that, that would be, if we could have proportional representation in the United States, a lot of our problems would be solved really, really fast. I think yeah. based on comparing, you know, and if you really hate polarization or this, this, the, you know, guess what? Proportional representation will take care of that problem because once you have a multi-party democracy, that is what will cause people to start having to compromise because nobody has a majority and everyone has to compromise and they all have to mellow out. Yeah, I really, uh, I really appreciate Jack Santucci's book on this, uh, the the history of electoral reform book on the no parties or more parties book, because I think that the Proportional representation, especially party-based proportional representation, actually gives a path to governance uh, for small parties because otherwise we're existing as a third party in a two-party system. And and as a third party in a two-party system, for the most part, our ability is to sting like a bee and then die. Uh, You know, that's for the most part how it works. So, Right. I mean, the... the, the my starting assumption is we're not going to have the electoral reform. So, so let's, you know, work in what we've got, but Jack has done an amazing job studying the history of this. I mean, it's, it's really great work uh, that, and just the detail that he is, uh, uh, that he has worked through and, and largely his conclusions basically are, are really at the same place where mine are on this. It's, 
It's, you know, it's, we got to the, this point doing different types of research, but we've come to the, the same conclusion that, that the, this whole Duverger's law, you know, that you'll never have, you'll only have a two-party system, period. It's just, it's not the case, but boy, would we be better off at proportional representation. Um, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's a, uh, Maryland, I, in some ways, I think that Maryland, Maryland has multi-member districts. Uh, right now, we have three people in our lower house and one in our Senate. Uh, and I sort of feel like a four to five person uh, district magnitude would actually allow our, our legislature to have multiple parties get elected. Um, especially, you know, I think there were five races in 2022 that would be even close to considered close. Uh, at, you know, and it's one or two state Senate races that were within five points, one or two state house races that were within three points. You know, it, it is, it is sorted polarized and gerrymandered to a degree that the general election almost never matters. And, you know, that's causing an increasingly fast dealignment, um, where more and more folks are sort of signing up and we have a closed primary state. So we have more and more people who will sign up just for a primary uh, in order to be uh, in the only party that matters in their jurisdiction and then go back to independent. You know, and I would love to see us with a four member proportional representation legislature. I don't I don't know that it's going to happen. I think I sort of share your pessimism about the ability to get Democrats to do that, especially without power of referendum in Maryland. But I think it's a good vision. Well, I, I think the way to look at it is is everything is impossible until it actually happens. Right. That's and I I think you have to push for for these kinds of reforms. I mean the the it was considered the 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 left was considered dead for for decades and now it's not. For example, and so it. It, I, I just don't think you have to put all of your eggs into the, the proportional representation basket. And and again, I don't think San, Jack Santucci would make that argument either. I think you need to you need to look at it as as phases. But on top of it, remember that that also threatening the major parties is a way of getting them to be more open to reform. Yep. They respond yep. to pressure. And so so it really is being clever and strategic and, and coming up from an angle that they're not expecting. And again, I mean, you, people talk about, about the, the, the third party states, you know, and everybody talks about New York state as one. I mean, earlier it was, it was Wisconsin and, and Minnesota and then New York because it's the, the, the state that uses fusion, but really the state to study probably is Vermont mm -hmm. at this point. I mean, mm -hmm. it, Vermont is, and, and what makes Vermont work, it seems, is that they have this very kind of localized uh, government. They have a very open system that makes it easier. In effect, it's, it's, it's again, it's a resource system. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, and, and you're not going to make Maryland into Vermont. I mean, Vermont is a, a, a small rural state. There's not a lot of people. It makes it really possible easier for third parties there than than it would in 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 Maryland but it still starts producing a blueprint and you're still talking simple single member districts which means what you want more and more is if you, to try to win just a few of these these let's say state legislative races to nail one of them the the way to do it is is concentrate geographic concentration matters mm -hmm. maybe around college park maybe somewhere where you have have younger voters more concentrated you know really? kind of go in and and yeah you want to run a candidate everywhere but the major parties put their money where where they think they might be able to win and it might be be worth really focusing in seeing how you can come from an angle that the that the other parties haven't thought of you have nothing to lose really right and, yeah. that's one of the best freedoms of being of running a third party campaign or being in a third party is there's really no power for us to lose there's really you know there's time money uh energy 
and spirit to lose, but there's nothing material or power-wise for us to lose by trying different strategies. You know, we have a district that is a couple of miles to the west of us that is a state legislative district that has six colleges in it. Uh, and a state legislative district with six colleges should be on the absolute top of the Greens uh, agenda for where we're Organize trying. right yeah. there. I would, I would organize right there. I mean, that's the, that becomes it. And, and yeah, it's, you know, you, you don't beat the major players. Think of it as it needs to be, you know, almost like guerrilla tactics. You know, it's, I'm no advocate for violence, certainly, but as an analogy, yeah. they, they, you know, you, you come in, you come in from an angle that, that they're totally not expecting. And, and that's, that becomes the key. Imitating the major players is is going to get you nowhere. And I right. think that there's way too much of within the third party movement of well, this is how campaigns are run. Here's the other secret about about the the progressives back in in nineteen like nineteen ten nineteen twelve. They invented the modern campaign. They didn't. So part of it was, yeah, they it was a sting like a bee, but it was also part of the sting like a bee was we're going to nationalize this. We're going to work in a way that works for us. That's going to be very different than the way the Democrats and Republicans run. They were good. The, the Republicans were caught flat footed. They, they thought they were in charge and suddenly they weren't in charge. And so I, I think it's it's a case of of trying to. In, in, instead of bemoaning the the limitations that third parties face, and they're real, but still is is looking at it at what can we come up with as an angle based on the resources we have, you know, find out what it is because I uh, that that you know, and again, that's my take is is younger voters are probably the key based on the polling that I've seen. But again, yeah. you're not going to know it's going to work, whether it's going to work until it actually works. And yeah. that's part of the surprise effect as well. I think I think Lee Dretman says uh, rigid systems are fragile systems uh, when talking about this. And I think that, that I think that that is a way of thinking about this that is really useful, which is like we we're never going to. We're never going to go into election night thinking we're going to get 5% and end up with 51%. But we may go into election night thinking we're going to get 30% and end up with 51%. Or, you know, I mean, right. depending on the polling. I mean, I, I think I think polling presents itself as an obstacle in this. But I think that the point here is that it is like, look, it is possible and it has been possible throughout history for third parties to emerge, to make an impact to transform uh, the material conditions and to transform the results and to be determinative of outcomes. Uh, and then maybe they fade away and reemerge uh, in, in, in that cycle, but it is possible, it has happened. And the moment we live in right now is well poised for that because the conditions are ripe. Even if the, even if the, uh, even if the limitations are real, the possibilities are strong. That's right. I mean, you know, I mean, again, not a third party candidate, but AOC is such a perfect example of this. She decided to run as a in the in the primary against the top number two, number three Democrat in the country. Yep. But the reason why it worked was she she located a weakness. Again, if you're looking guerrilla tactics, guerrilla tactics, you hit where they're not they're not expecting it. And the assumption was, you know, well, this is such a big, powerful guy. He doesn't really even have to try. And so she was coming in. And yes, it's exactly what you thought. She walked in to election night thinking, OK, here's another loss, but we have to go through it. And wait a minute, why are there journalists running to my event? Yep. And now she's one of the biggest politicians in the United States. And and that's the, the tactic. And again, there's no guarantees about this, but the guarantee is that if you keep running things in the way that the major parties run it, if you're not looking for their weaknesses, if you're not looking to pivot, if you're not looking for angles, then then nothing's going to happen. You you have to keep kind of maneuvering that way, and that's more less ideological, more strategic, basically. 
Excellent. Yeah, I think I think that's really good advice, and uh, I will I will take that uh, at heart in my campaign. Uh, you know, we still have a couple of years left before we get to twenty twenty six, but I'm trying to start early, talk to people, and figure out what those strategic opportunities are, um, so that we're not trying to figure them out in August of twenty twenty six. We can figure them out now. We can begin to move, and we can begin to uh, talk to. We can begin to figure out the places where the two parties are not being responsive uh, and where there is a need that is not being filled and recognize the, the reasons that folks have left or abandoned um, those two parties. Right. And, and as you do that, the first people who will take notice are actually other people within the Green Party. The more they see them, because sometimes for a lot of people, they have to see something in action and then they're like, oh, wait a minute. Hey, this is a good idea. Right. So this is it's I I think I I absolutely think that that's the right way to go. I, I 100 percent agree. Excellent. Well, we are we are at an hour and when we agreed that we were going to do an hour on this, we might uh, want to do another one at some point and dig into other issues. Um, Dr. Tomas, I really appreciate your coming on today talking about this. Um, we will share the link to the book. Uh, in the in the chat when we when we go ahead and publish this we'll we'll share links out to that um, and I really appreciated the opportunity to talk about uh, the moment of possibility that does exist for third parties even if it feels like the limitations um, are as stark as they've ever been I think the combination of those two things understanding why the limits work and what that suggests as the possibilities hopefully not just for my campaign, but around the country, uh, provides an opportunity to start to pierce the inevitability of this two-party system a little bit. Anything you want to leave us with before we uh, shut the stream down? I I thought this was a great conversation. I think it's, I like the fact of having time to go and to do the deep dive. And and so I, I appreciate the time uh, that that we spent on this. So so thank you so much for 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 inviting me. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And hopefully we can continue this conversation uh, on Twitter, um, over email, and maybe on another one of these streams. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.